This evening I'd like to speak about renunciation. It seems that most of the qualities of heart and mind that we treasure and long for and aspire to rest upon our capacity to let go, to rest upon our capacity to release our hearts from the painful contractedness of holding and clinging and grasping. It's probably evident to most of us that the places where we hold and cling most tightly are also the places that we suffer most deeply, whether it's clinging to the pleasant or to the unpleasant, whether it's external or internal. The result and the impact of clinging is pretty much always the same. The sense of being governed by what we cling to, the sense of being imprisoned and contracted. Simplicity and generosity and loving kindness and compassion all rest upon our willingness to let go. A heart without boundaries, a mind of calmness, a life of freedom, they all rest upon renunciation. Now, we find ourselves very much in this rather odd position of longing for those qualities, but strangely enough, or maybe not so strangely, not equally longing for renunciation. So this is our dilemma. This is our paradox. This is a question we're asked to explore. That we're happy to let go of suffering, but we're ambivalent often about letting go of holding. There is no doubt that it feels very hard at times to let go. If we explore the reality of holding very clearly, we would see that it, in truth it is much harder and much more painful not to let go. No one has yet discovered, I fear, how to have, how to grasp and how to cling tenaciously and have that grasping and clinging be a pain-free experience. If someone could discover the way to do that, probably none of us we would, would be here. We're happy, of course, to let go of struggle and suffering, but not always eager to let go of the causes. Or else, we just feel that we don't know how. Now, I understand that the word renunciation is sometimes a very hard word to hear. You know, we'd like something softer. (laughs) We'd like to hear about letting things be, which is fine. You know, even letting go is not too bad. But renunciation, this is tough, isn't it? Renunciation. Some people tell me when they hear that word, it kind of sends a shiver up their spine. You know, that, oh, God. One reason is, of course, it's a very countercultural word, isn't it? I mean, you, you don't pick up the newspaper, turn on the TV, and, you know, hear, oh, what a good day to let go. 
Isn't it so much of the conditioning in our life is that our safety, our happiness, our well-being, our our status, our uh, being someone, that all of this depends actually not on letting go, but this depends on holding tightly, as tightly as you possibly can. And I think... On some deep level within us, the word renunciation can trigger these waves of anxiety. And our our mind, it carries this association of being, you know, deprived, bereft, lonely. That if we renounced, you know, it means that we have no place in the world, no relationships, no aspiration, you know, no creativity, no life to live. And I I think at times renunciation can carry these unconscious associations and images of it somehow meaning a life that has a lack of heart or a lack of warmth and love and care. Mostly when we think of, you know, a renunciate. Probably the images that come to mind, you know, or the closest symbols we have for a renunciate might be a a monk or a nun or someone living within the walls of the cloisters of a monastery who, in our perception, and I say only in our perception, have chosen not to live a life of engagement, of intimacy, of connectedness. Now, strangely and not so strangely, we can very much admire some of these models and images and Imagine, you know, that, that to live a life, for example, as a monk or nun, it's not an easy path. And, but from the outside, and I stress only from the outside, it can often, you know, look like a lot of austerity and a kind of disconnection. Not much fun, actually. Not much fun. I think historically these images do make quite a powerful impact. I mean, when you, when you look at the statue behind me, you know, do you feel much like it looks like you? <laughs> Not really. You know, it's like, oh, you know, what's that got to do with my life, you know, my body, my, you know, my way of being in the world? We can believe then that renunciation doesn't have much to do with us. Yet more and more, my sense is that as the dhammas, the teaching, the practice has so much moved beyond the monastery walls that our challenge as lay people who live daily lives of engagement, sometimes of complexity, of intimacy, of relationship, is is really to discover and to explore what renunciation means in this life and in this body and this mind and this heart. I can assure you, and I'm sure Rodney can assure you too, that the nuns and monks in monasteries face each day the same challenges and the same invitations that we, find, that we face. How to find our heart's release, how to find the freedom and joy of non-holding. The monks and nuns in monasteries hold the same longings that we hold, the yearning for peace, the yearning for freedom, the yearning for understanding. And my feeling is that more and more we come to see that renunciation is essentially an inner journey. It doesn't matter what our lifestyle is, whether it's complex or simple. 
all of us, if we really treasure peace and if we really treasure freedom, are asked to explore what renunciation means in our life. And sometimes it's helpful to almost kind of reframe the question and to reframe the journey. You know, to me, one of, one of the greatest um, manifestations of delusion is that delusion makes us think that renunciation doesn't end suffering but causes suffering. So when we're kind of lost in delusion and we think about renunciation, what we think about is, is how we're going to suffer because of renunciation. You know, we start thinking about all the things we might have to do without, you know, all the states, all the experiences, all the things, you know. I mean, look at it on the nitty-gritty level, you know, we might think of, oh, that second plate of food at lunchtime. Maybe I would have to do without it, you know. Or what about my favorite fantasy? Or what about, you know, my, my great life ambition? We think of loss. And, and often we think about the loss of self, the loss of identity, and the loss of safety. And I, I feel like unconsciously often this kind of fear of loss, fear of being unsupported by all that we hold on to, is sometimes the energy that keeps us holding. And sometimes, too, the energy that keeps us suffering. Because it is almost as if we really do feel that without clinging, we have no support, no ground in our life. I think also at times we do tend to see the at least the short-term short and positive outcome of craving and clinging. Because sometimes, at least now and again, I have to say, craving and clinging seems to work. You know, if you sit here and you feel miserable and you suddenly get this impulse to go see the kind of, you know, nightlife of Barry or something. <laughs> you know... It would work, maybe, you know? <laughs> you know, if you sit there, you know, at home and you're feeling a little restless and a little unhappy, well, there's the fridge. There's the TV. You know, pick up the phone. So they feel much better. So, so sometimes it actually seems to work, doesn't it? We, we tend to have, though, this kind of short-term memory problem because we see it only offers this very... Temporary alleviation from the tension of wanting. It doesn't alleviate craving, but it alleviates the tension of craving. So suddenly we breathe out and we think, oh, good, I was successful, that worked. You know, and then we, we remember that. You know, next time some discontent or some you know, misery comes our way, you know, we, we've got our whole world lined up as ways to actually kind of soothe ourselves, the comfort food of the self that we surround us with in our lives. I like to reframe the question and to think of renunciation as liberation. To think of renunciation as release. To think of them interchangeably. Because... I think in not only in my experience, I think in your experience too, we sometimes see that our capacity to let go, 
you know, to let go of obsession, to let go of preoccupation, to let go of being lost, to let go of craving, it actually releases a great deal of peace. Releases often a great deal of joy, sometimes of compassion. It releases calmness, releases intimacy and connectedness. Renunciation is not only a direct path to joy and happiness and freedom. It is in itself joy and happiness and freedom. The Buddha put it that the natural state of our mind and heart is luminous. That the natural state of our mind and heart is bright, is radiant, is without boundaries. And that natural luminosity, that natural vastness of our own heart and mind is only colored by the clinging and the holding that visits us. So in letting go, we are really letting, learning to let go into a very natural happiness and joy and ease. And, you know, beneath every moment of letting go, every moment of release, my sense that it's, it's a faith that is fulfilled. The faith that is fulfilled is the faith that the true source of joy and richness lies in our own hearts and minds and not in all that we cling to. The faith that is fulfilled is the faith in our capacity to rest in freedom. And my sense is that behind every moment of holding and within every moment of holding, There is a faith that is shaken and sometimes even betrayed as as we lose that connection inwardly with that sense of freedom and trust and wholeness. Now, I know that sometimes clinging or holding can seem very theoretical, you know, but if after the talk tonight, you know, if if you would like to go outside and, you know, pick up a pebble from the road, you know, and hold it very tightly in your hand and walk around with your hand clenched around it for, you know, a few minutes or a few hours, you would pretty much soon see how that pain becomes your world because we close down around it. We surrender spaciousness. We surrender openness. We surrender ease. And the holding and actually the pain is really quite optional. All we need to do in that situation is to open our hand and the pain ends. And learning to let go, learning about the genuine meaning of renunciation is really learning to open our hearts and minds as we would open our hands. As Ajahn Chah says, you know, if you let go a little, you have a little peace. If you are let go a lot, you have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you have complete peace. And that opening of our hand, the opening of our our heart and our mind, is in reality, I feel like, a, a gesture of compassion. It's a gesture of loving kindness and warmth. Now, the Buddha, like all great mystics, really placed renunciation and the release of the and, and release at the heart of a path of freedom. 
Nisargadatta, the great Indian teacher, once said that spiritual maturity lies in our readiness to let go of everything. Giving up is the first step, but the real giving up is realizing there is nothing to give up because there is nothing you can truly call your own. So renunciation is not, it's not the world we are giving up. It's not all that we treasure and love and value that we are releasing. What we are truly giving up is wrong view. What we are giving up is a mistaken notion that really we can hold on to anything, that we can make life stand still for us, that we can control anything. That what we are giving up is this wrong view that somehow planning is going to guarantee the future that we want or that we're giving up, giving up the fear and anxiety that lies so much at the heart of struggle and suffering. What we're really releasing is the notion of self and separation, the mythology of self and separation. Now, It would be quite nice, actually, if we had a kind of recipe book for renunciation, an instruction manual, you know, that we could look to and figure out how to do it. You know, turn to page three, you know, obsession on page one, you know. And there we got it, you know. But I think there isn't really an instruction book. Because my sense is that renunciation or our... Letting go is, in truth, born of love. It's born of a love of freedom. And it's also born of a very deep understanding of what it means to be not free. Curiously, the Buddha put sorrow as a condition for the arising of faith. And sometimes... It is faith that is the the condition for the arising of our willingness to let go. If we don't actually really know sorrow as sorrow and have the willingness to turn towards it, to be intimate with it, to question it, then we really have no ground for a sense of possibility, the, uh, the, the possibility of its ending, nor are we willingness to explore a path to its end. I'm sure we see this very often in our life, you know, that we don't actually see sorrow as sorrow. We don't actually see suffering as suffering. You know, like we can find it quite satisfactory to be lost. You know, we can find it quite satisfying to be, you know, endlessly pursuing gratification. I I saw this, you know, quite graphically when last year my parents moved in with me for a rather extended visit of five months. (laughs) having been invited for a week or two. And, and my father is, you know, you shouldn't be surprised I gave a talk on patience because last year I had five months very much dedicated to cultivating the paramis. And every morning I would wake up and today is patience day, and today is generosity day, and today is loving kindness day. But part of the reason for doing that is because I come from a very long lineage of very impatient people and... Um, my father is unfortunately rather like that. 
And so, you know, the world is kind of his enemy often. It's very sad. You know, so he's in a constant state of battle. But one of the places this really gets... Ag- well, how, how can I say one of the places? I don't tell you, the places that get aggravated. But anyway, I, I know that one day when we were in the supermarket, again, I don't think I spend all my time in supermarkets, but anyway, I, we were in the supermarket and I'd parked my car and my father got out of the car and he'd done his thing that he did every time I parked my car, which was to get out and measure how much I was... <laughs> inside the lines. Anyway, someone had left their trolley, their shopping cart, in the space beside me. And suddenly I heard this shouting going on, and it was my dad. You know, there's nobody there. There's just a trolley there, a shopping cart there. And he's, he's shouting about, you know, about how inconsiderate everybody is and you know, and, you know, the world is full of, you know, lazy, idle people who never return their carts. And so, anyway, there's a whole thing going on. And I turned to him and I said, you know, Dad, I think there might be another way of doing this. I said, what do you mean another way of doing this? He says, this is how I do it. This is how I've always done it. And, you know, the, just my sense was, you know, that this is so sad not to see suffering as suffering. Because if you don't see suffering as suffering, you don't question it, do you? You just think it's normal. You just think, oh, that's, that's, you know, that's how my mind is, you know, that's how life is, that's, you know, how my heart is, you know, as, as if there are no options. I mean, this whole path, I would say, is rooted in the, the very reality that there are options, I think we really need to take that to heart. You know, if there were no options, you know, where do we get our inspiration from? Where do we get our motivation from? What do we aspire to? We end up meditating just as a way of, of you know, a quick fix for, you know, the hiccups in our life or a self-improvement program. You know, this practice is about liberation. You know, the Buddha talked about the third noble truth, the end of suffering. It relies upon questioning. Now, although there is no formula and no instruction book, I'd like to talk tonight about some of the ways that the Buddha did talk about cultivating renunciation. One of the ways, because he talked about vimuti, liberation, in a whole number of different ways. One of the ways that he spoke of as being a direct way of cultivating renunciation was through ethics and integrity. In this tradition, this is the basis of everything. Integrity, goodness of heart, is the basis of all wisdom, of all peace, of all, cal- of all calmness. It's a direct way of turning our hearts and minds away from greed and anger and fear and doubt. And that, you know, is turning our hearts and minds away from suffering. We see how much, you know, and integrity is not easy. I would say it's really not easy. It is really a training. But what we see in any kind of act or word or thought that is harmful, we do see holding. We do see clinging. We do see the sense of self very strongly, what I need, what I want, what I must have, what I must get rid of. It seems that the price of genuine goodness of heart for most of us is the willingness to let go. 
But that willingness to let go, the inspiration for that, must really lie in both our sense of what suffering is and our sense of what the absence of suffering is. Because, you know, when we see, you know, within any act of, that is not based in ethics, not based in kindness, not based in goodness of heart, think of the guilt, the, re- the regret, the blame we live with, not only living with the consequences of our actions. So ethics is one of the trainings of renunciation. I mean, really, to live with loving, you know, to live with integrity, don't we have to let go all the time? You know, of greed, of wanting, of resistance. And ethics has a very strong relationship to the Brahma-Viharas, to loving kindness and compassion. For most of us, I think for many of us, to really cultivate loving kindness in the midst of anger or fear really does ask for a lot of renunciation. And you think of any time when you're faced with hostility or rage and you see the the wave of impulse arise so quickly to react, to punish, to assert self. And what happens when we're able to let go of that? What happens when we're able to find in ourselves a deeper kindness, a deeper understanding? You know, Ramdas once said, I'd rather be happy than right. Well, quite frankly, most of my life I've spent, I'd rather be right than happy. And it's miserable being right sometimes, isn't it? I mean, it's so unsatisfying. And that doesn't mean condoning that which is unwholesome. But it does mean really looking at those places where we assume these positions of self-righteousness in our life and we really surrender connectedness. What are we letting go of in loving kindness? Where we're letting go of the angry self, the fearful self, the defensive self. When we practice loving kindness, we're constantly turning our hearts and minds away from bitterness and resentment. Each time, it's a letting go. And each time, we are really sensing that release from contractedness. Now, another of the ways that the Buddha taught about renunciation, the way it's developed, is actually through the path of samatha, or calmness. Within calmness, there is really, we discover a quality of renunciation which is quite effortless. And I decided to explain, because I'm sure you have all experienced that over these days here. Have you noticed that there are times when when you've practiced and your mind is pretty calm and collected and focused. It doesn't mean that the world has stopped, does it? There are thoughts that arise, you know, sounds that arise, images that arise, memories that arise. But if you notice when you're really in that place where there's a good deal, real inner calmness, how the letting go is quite effortless. You know, you don't tell yourself, oh, I'm going I'm to let go of this thought. It just arises and it passes. It appears, it disappears. Have you noticed other times when you've been practicing and maybe... Instead of calmness, the mind is more agitated and restless and, uh, you know, uh, tense. Exactly the same thoughts and images arise, but they find a foothold in the mind. They they don't let go, because it is almost as if the the climate of mind is providing the ground in which there either is a natural letting go or in which there is stickiness. 
Now, one of the reasons why there is such a strong emphasis in this tradition of really developing samatha and very, very deep inner calmness is to provide no foothold for clinging, no foothold for grasping, no foothold for, for isolation. Now, when you see the difference between those two experiences of when there is a very effortless letting go and when there is just sticking, then I think it's really important to ask, does that effortless letting go really have to be an accident? When, we, when there is the encouragement to cultivate samatha in practice, it's not encouraged as a kind of path of self-punishment, but as an act of, calmness, uh, act of kindness, because it's what allows the release of agitation, the release of storms, the release of disconnection. It's not easy. You know, I, you know, I, I mean, you know, the samatha practice is becoming one of the kind of lost arts in, in uh, Buddhist meditative traditions, the, you know, very deep practices of samatha. And one of the reasons I think it's becoming a kind of lost art is because developing samatha really challenges that habit of being lost, our intoxication with being lost. You know, that, that, in, that habit of being you know, infatuated with mental swirls is so deeply embedded. But what we start to see here, even over a few days, don't, don't you find that amazing? I always find myself awed by that autumn retreat. I mean, I know, you know, it can seem like eternity. But if, you know, if we do a reality check, we've actually only been here a few days. You know, and actually the, the very major shift that can happen in, in just the kind of how your, how your consciousness works I mean, isn't that amazing? A few days. You know, suddenly the calmness on the first day you might have thought was impossible, and then maybe some of you still think it's impossible, but, you know, but you start to actually see, ah, hey, that's calmness. Isn't that amazing? Where did that come from? Well, guess where it came from? It came from your effort. It came from your intention. It came from your collectedness. And actually, if that's what happens in a few days, like, imagine what kind of calmness is really possible for you. It's not easy because the habit of dwelling and preoccupation is not just a habit of mind. It's also the comfort food of the self. It's how we provide the ground for a sense of self, sustain the illusion of self. One of the things that happens in uh, deeper states of samatha is that there is a discovery of such a depth and such a richness of inner happiness and joy that is really born in our own hearts and minds, that the discovery of that really changes our relationship to the world. Because discovering that depth of inner richness and happiness inwardly, there is such a deep knowing in that, that there is nothing that can be clung to, nothing that can be, can be grasped hold of that can ever provide a quality of happiness that can compare in any way with that very deep inner joy, that very deep inner happiness, born of a collected heart and mind. So our relationship actually both 
to our inner world and our outer world actually really does shift. And there's just less interest in clinging. Now, another word, another way that the Buddha talked about renunciation, he used the word abandonment as describing a way of releasing our hearts from contractedness. Now, obviously, you know, this is a word we need to be incredibly careful around. There is a kind of abandonment which, you know, we may have experienced all too often in our life. There's a kind of an abandonment which is an expression of neglect, of rejection, of fear, and aversion. It's kind of like the near enemy of renunciation. You know, like we walk away from something, we dismiss it or we discard it, and we tell ourselves we're letting go. But really, we're just walking away from something that we don't want to open to. But I also feel that it's worth reflecting on whether there is a quality of abandonment that is not neglectful and not cold and not aversive, but a quality of abandonment that is deeply rooted in caring for the well-being of our own heart and mind. And I'll explain where that comes in. I'm sure everybody in this room has experienced over these days that we carry a few well-worn grooves in our consciousness. And we've walked those well-worn grooves a thousand, a million times. The groove of self-judgment, the groove of self-blame, the groove of guilt, the groove of resistance, the groove of anxiety, the groove of rehearsing every moment, the groove of doubt. You know, it's like we go on pilgrimages to these grooves. We visit them like holy shrines. (laughs) Often, actually, we don't really want to be there. We don't delight in them, but there we are again. And at times we have a lot of retrospective wisdom, and we say, well, I didn't really need to do that. You know, I didn't really need to impose that on myself. But that retrospective retrospective wisdom and seeing how we suffer in those grooves somehow doesn't seem to convince us or it doesn't seem to stop us from doing it again. It's like the habit of dwelling in pain. Now, sometimes I would say we have learned all we're going to learn from those groups. There is not one more drop of insight to be squeezed from walking down that pathway again. We, we, are, we could write books on guilt. We could write books on self-judgment. You know, we could write books on self-consciousness, on, on fear and anxiety. We, we know this territory. We know where it came from. You know, we know how it manifests. Any more to learn? I think we've done it, you know, And sometimes now it's just a habit. It's kind of like one of the components that has become built into our sense of self. And you know what? Now we're just suffering. We're not learning anymore. We're not deepening our insight anymore. Sometimes now we're just suffering. (laughs) So we think about abandonment. You know, we take the resolve and the clear intention to withdraw our consent. It is not out of ignorance. It's not pushing away. It's not resistance. You know, this is like some old war wound. 
You know, we know it's there, but we kind of withdraw our consent. The intention to let go. Sometimes that intention manifests, you know, as moving to loving kindness, moving to a very tangible object of connection. And we don't just do it once. We do it a thousand times. But each time we cultivate that intent, we are cultivating a way of caring for our own well-being. Another way that the Buddha talked about renunciation is another, I'm afraid, rather unpalatable word. He used the word disenchantment as a way of release. Now, disenchantment, of course, it doesn't sound like much fun, does it? Disenchantment is another word, another one of these words, it doesn't sound particularly alluring. You know what disenchantment is? Disenchantment is a withdrawal of projected promise. Now, a lot of our clinging and a lot of our grasping is rooted in projected promise. I'll give you an example from this. We've all been there. Falling in love. Now, aren't we pretty sure that our happiness and completeness and fulfillment really does lie in this person? We are pretty sure of it. We're not going to be happy without them. It's the externalization of happiness and unhappiness, the externalization of joy and sorrow. We can be enchanted with hatred. You know, the the source of our unhappiness is outside of ourselves. We can be enchanted with a particular meditation experience. If I get that experience, I'm going to be, you know, really together. You know, we can be enchanted with a new car. We can be enchanted with a job. We can be enchanted with the favorite chocolate in the box. You know, if I just get that, then life is going to be a ball ball of cherries, you know? It's like the shift of our projected promise keeps changing, but the sense of vacuum that, like Rodney was talking about last night, that sense of inner vacuum, of longing, of of sense of lack of wholeness inwardly, keeps generating more and more projected promise. Sometimes we're so enchanted with the people we're in conflict with, with what we want to avoid, you know. I, I get enchanted with tempeh at lunch, you know. I just think, if only they wouldn't serve tempeh. <laughs> I would be so happy. You know, well, actually, I don't think it's really up to that, you know. It's the externalization of happiness and unhappiness. The externalization of freedom. The externalization of wholeness. First, there's the projection. You know, this thing, this person, this event, this situation is truly the cause of my unease, my unhappiness. First there's a projection, and then following the projection there's the agitation. If I could get rid of it, if I could get it, if I could stop it, if I could fix it, then everything would be fine. Disenchantment is not saying that everything is perfect in the world. You know, it's like Suzuki Roshi said, you know, everything is perfect, but there's a lot of room for improvement. (laughs) disenchantment is the withdrawal of projected promise and that's born of insight and investigation of really investigating all those moments when we deliver ourselves into emotional dependency born of investigating all of those moments when we deliver ourselves into the grip of that conviction 
that anything or anyone in the world has the power to dictate our well-being. This enchantment doesn't mean that we stop loving. It doesn't mean that we stop caring. It doesn't mean that we stop feeling aversion or anxiety. But we might stop blaming, and we might stop running in those agitated circles of pursuit and avoidance. We might reclaim a sense of freedom. In the Satipatthana Sutta, over and over again, the Buddha says, abiding, independent, not clinging to anything. This does not mean, independence in this sense does not mean abiding, disconnected, or isolated, or separate. It means discovering the freedom of not being governed by anything. And we are practicing to train ourselves in that inner freedom. We are practicing to train ourselves in what it means moment to moment to be not governed by anything. And we discover in that training that not being governed by anything means not clinging to anything. This is not a distant goal. This is not a reward for years of heroic effort. This is a practice of the moment, of looking at the moments when we feel less than free, looking at what we cling to, looking at how we might let go. We know the unhappiness of the moments of holding, But those moments of holding are the very places where we're asked to find release, to ask ourselves where the peace is in those moments. Sometimes that letting go is going to come through forgiveness. Sometimes that letting go is going to come through loving kindness, through compassion. Sometimes that release is going to come through really looking at the places where we've made a habit of dwelling and obsessing. Can we abandon them? Last year when I was teaching here, I opened my eyes one day, and I don't know why I'd never thought of this before, but I realized every meditation room I teach in, when I open my eyes, I see the exit sign. (laughs) And This is just so terrific. You know, sometimes when we are in that habit, the habit of dwelling, we just need to remember the exit sign. We don't need to justify it, explain it, you know, figure out its history and its future. We just need to remember the exit sign. Sometimes we need to look at the places where we are really besotted with projected promise. And learn to practice in a way where we treasure freedom, where we really treasure the freedom of the moment. Ajahn Chah once said, the Buddha taught us to lay down those things that lack a real abiding essence. If you lay down everything, you will see the truth. If you don't, you won't. That's the way it is. And when wisdom awakens within you, you will see the truth wherever you look. Truth is all you'll see. We could have a couple of moments quietly together.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.